0: We're going to read a passage from first Kings it's going to be it's part of the passage that we're going to hear later Charles Ronfeld is going to preach to us later uh, from this passage we're going to read half that passage now so if you have your Bibles turn to first Kings chapter 21 first uh, Kings chapter 21 we use the ESV here at Bull Creek uh, but if you have a different version you're still allowed uh, you know so please uh, just open your Bibles to first Kings chapter 21. It's easy to find. It's just before 2 Kings, so you should have no problem finding it. I want you to think as you read through the scriptures, where is Ahab's focus? Where is he looking? What's he focused on? And then what's his response? So just think about that as we read through this passage. Where is Ahab focused and what is his response? First Kings 21 now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. And I will give you the better, a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you the value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you yet another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite." So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. The men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters, that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast. They set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite to him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, "Arise, take possession of the vineyard of, the, of Naboth, uh, the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, to take possession of it.
1: So we'll be continuing our reading from 1 Kings 21 verses 17 to 29. So that's 1 Kings chapter 21 verses 17 to 29. I'll give you a moment to find the spot. This is the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, and for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin." and of Jezebel the lord also said the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel any one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city the dogs shall eat and any one of his who dies in the open country the birds of the heaven shall eat there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the lord like Ahab whom Jezebel his wife incited he acted very abomin- abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, "'Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? "'Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Thanks, Charles.
2: Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy and delight to be here with you as always in God's word. We're continuing in the book of 1 Kings, as we've just read, and this will be the second last sermon in the series. So next week, Craig's going to conclude for us in chapter 22, but this week we're in chapter 21. Looking at the self centered King Ahab, his wife, the evil queen Jezebel, and a blameless man named Naboth. I've had many deep discussions with people about theology and theological ethics, so that's questions about God and also how God wants us to live. And some of the most difficult questions, usually to illustrate their point, use the most extreme examples of sin and wickedness that's known to mankind. And in many situations, this most extreme of evils centres upon Nazi Germany during World War II and the atrocities that were committed against the Jews. You'll find questions when asking about ethics and God. You'll find questions like, what would you do if you were hiding Jews in your house and a Nazi knocked on your door? Is it permissible to lie? Or there's the question, would it be permissible to kill Adolf Hitler if it prevented the torture and death of millions? Or sometimes there's this loaded question. Would God forgive even Adolf Hitler if he repented and believed in Jesus Christ? And the follow-up comment to that question is sometimes, well, that just wouldn't be right. Now, the, rea- the reality is that Hitler, as far as we know, did not repent and believe in Jesus Christ and is under God's eternal wrath. But the question remains, would God ever have mercy on someone that evil? Would God ever have mercy on someone that evil? And would someone that evil... Ever repent? Well, the answer in this story before us might surprise you as we hear of the evil king in Israel, Israel's most wicked king, and the story that ensues. So, we're going to split up chapter 21 and to help us follow it, we're going to look at three sections. So, the first section is going to be a declined deal, which is verses 1 to 4. The second we will call Jezebel's plot, and that's going to be the next big chunk. And then the third and last section is going to be God's judgment. And those will come up on the slides for you to follow as well. So let's look at the first part of this story now, a declined deal in verses 1 to 4. Now, chapter 21 is beginning in the context of the last chapter, where Naboth and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, went head-to-head multiple times. And by God's grace, not Ahab's godliness, by God's grace entirely, God brings victory to Israel. And by the end of chapter 20, if you remember from Joshua's sermon a few weeks back, Ahab had captured his enemy, Ben-Hadad, and instead of killing him like he should have, he released him and made a selfish deal. Now, after that, in response, God brings a word of judgment. Let's read the last two verses of chapter 20, just as a refresher. Verses 42 and 43. And he, that is the prophet, said to him, Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. So the last chapter ends with a pronouncement that Ahab and his relatives will die in judgment for his sin against God. And Ahab goes home sulking. Now it's in this context of a sulky Ahab this next story comes where we're introduced now to the next character coming in this story in verse one named Naboth the Jezreelite who had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Now some important details are coming through already in verse one that will become clearer in a moment namely that Naboth's heritage and family line And therefore, the land that he owns belongs solely to him as a gift to his family from the Lord God. And this was a gift given to his family way back, even before Israel entered the Promised Land. The land that Naboth owns in Jezreel, as a Jezreelite, rightly belongs to him. And the Lord God placed a special significance On the land of each tribe in Israel. It wasn't to be treated as a commodity to be sold or to be given to another tribe, but the God given land of each tribe was to be treasured as a God given gift and remain in the possession of that tribe. Now there's a a section in Numbers 36, and I'll read from verse 7, that illustrates this very clearly, and I'll read it for you. Numbers 36 from verse 7. Says this The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. So, this should be in the front of any faithful Israelite's mind when they're considering the sale and transfer of land. But clearly, it isn't on Ahab's mind. And we'll see, in fact, Ahab proposes a deal to Naboth that completely ignores this and acts entirely in a self-centred pagan way. Let's read now chapter 21 of 1 Kings again from verses 2 to 4. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and turned away his face and would eat no food. And this is where we get our declined deal. Ahab's offer to Naboth is simply turned back in his face. But let's look at this deal a bit more. Why did Ahab want it? Simply because it was near his house. Ahab clearly had a place of residence which was next to uh, next to Naboth in Jezreel. And it was conveniently placed for him to start a veggie garden. It's a fairly trivial reason. And in human terms, Ahab's offer to Naboth seems too good to refuse. In return, Naboth was either going to receive a better vineyard or a big wad of cash. Clearly, Naboth's concern, though, is one of obedience to God. God. He seems to be one of the 7,000 faithful Israelites that God mentions to Elijah back in chapter 19. Naboth's reply simply emphasizes faithfulness to God. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth's reply is an example of faithfulness. How does Ahab respond to this? Well, he goes into his house and sulks, vexed and sullen, laying down grumpy on his bed, not eating food because he didn't get his way. This is an incredibly childish and sinful response. The right response would have been to thank Naboth for his godly rejection of the deal and repent for Ahab. But instead, we're getting blatantly embarrassing, cringy behavior that's typical of a child that doesn't get their way. Not behavior that should typify a noble king fit to rule a people. And this behavior shows just how unworthy Ahab is to be king, whose brazen self interest stands in stark contrast to our perfect glorious and selfless King Jesus. But what flows next out of Ahab's moodiness is lamentable. Let's look now as our third character enters the scene in verse 5, looking at Jezebel's plot. Jezebel enters... And sees Ahab obviously moody and says to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab's response is remarkable. Let's read from verse 6. And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Notice two things going here in Ahab's response. Firstly, Ahab reverses the order of the deal in recounting it to Jezebel, his wicked pagan queen. But secondly, and most importantly he childishly changes Naboth's answer to sound like one of stubbornness. He says, I will not give you my vineyard. That's not what Naboth said. And this is Ahab's spin on things, like a child recounting a story with just the right changes, the right twist to get their sibling in trouble instead of themselves. Now, Ahab takes Naboth's faithful response... And in his self-centered, sinful moodiness, sets Naboth up as unreasonable and incompliant with the king. And perhaps Ahab, being a weak and incompetent king, knew that his wife might just take things into her own hands if he relayed the situation in such a way that got her attention And that's exactly what happens. Jezebel rebukes him for his incompetence, tells him to regain his cheerfulness because he's about to get exactly what he wants. He's once again embarrassingly like a child as his mummy-like wife acts for him to make him feel better. The vibe is quite cringy. So now here in verse 8, we get the blessing... Sorry, the blessings... It's not blessings. We get the beginnings of Jezebel's plot to get Naboth's vineyard. She begins by acting in uh, in Ahab's name, first writing letters to the elders and leaders in Naboth's home city and sealing it with Ahab's seal, meaning that the letters carry Ahab's authority and they're meant to be read as such, as letters from the king. And let's read from verse 9 what Jezebel writes in these letters to the leaders. And she wrote in the letters, "Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him saying, 'You have cursed God and the king,' and then take him out and stone him to death." This is a devious and despicable plan. It's fairly straightforward, but let's break it down. Firstly, She orders the leaders in Naboth's town to proclaim a fast, which is usually done in light of some grave trouble on which the people are to call on the Lord. And then they're to seat Naboth at the head of the people. Now sitting Naboth here is meant to do either one of two things. Either, one, seat Naboth in some exalted position as if he's an example of piety to be followed. So that's the first option that could be going on, or two, it could be to hold some sort of court at which Naboth is to be seated in the place of defendant. Either could be going on. But from here, the leaders are to sit two worthless men opposite him, and they are to accuse Naboth of blasphemy, for which the biblical penalty is death. But the despicableness actually plays out in the details of the plan. Not only is Jezebel breaking God's good law by murdering Naboth, but she's doing it in such a way that by all appearances, this seems perfectly and biblically legitimate, in line with God's word. By having two worthless men, she's fulfilling the legal requirement for charges to be established on the basis of two or more, witnesses to be seen, which is seen as an example in Deuteronomy 19. The reference to worthless men highlights that these men have no regard for faithfulness to God and will do whatever they can for personal gain. So they're easily persuaded to do the most evil of acts. In this case, bear false witness against Naboth. And even the judgment to be given is in line with God's word. As blasphemy against God in Leviticus chapter 24 is to result in stoning the blasphemer to death. Sorry, one second. Sorry. Okay, there we go. Yep. So it's to result in stoning the blasphemer to death in Leviticus 24. And so blasphemy is so serious in Israel that they won't even use the words together, curse God. So you've got it there in your passage. You see, he cursed God. But underneath in the Hebrew, it actually says bless God as a euphemism for cursing. They won't even say it. That's how serious this sin is to Israelites. How wicked is this Queen Jezebel? using God's own law as a strategy to get away with murder and blatantly defy him.
0: <clears throat>
2: and how does the plan go down? Do all the leaders and elders in Naboth's City rebel and expose the injustice that's happening? <clears throat> not at all. There's not even a peep from them. They perfectly comply with, with Jezebel's letter from the king. Clearly, the moral state of Israel was at an incredible low point. Sorry, pardon. All right, there we go. So these these, uh, Israelites are at a very, very low point. The moral state was incredibly low. They perfectly comply with Jezebel's plot. Call a fast, set up two worthless men to bear false witness, and stone him to death. And clearly this is not so secret of a plan. The leaders come back to Jezebel and emphatically state to her, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. This is an absolutely horrendous moment for the people in Israel. A low moment only exceeded by the accusation of another, more righteous man, hundreds of years later, who was crucified upon a cross. From here, Jezebel comes back to Ahab. Her plan carried out and informs him of his new vineyard at the death of Naboth. And note her reasoning again in verse 15. As per Ahab's emphasis earlier, She says, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And what was Ahab's response? He doesn't even question her method, doesn't ask what happens. He just heads on down like a child to play with his new toy. He goes to take possession of his new vineyard. And it's here that we have our next character, enter in on the scene, as still as Ahab is going down to his new vineyard, with Elijah the prophet entering to declare what we find in the next section, God's judgment, from verses 17 to 24. Let's read from verses 17 to 19. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, "'Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria.' Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Immediately, the prophet Elijah exposes Ahab in his sin. Now you might be thinking, but hang on a moment. It wasn't Ahab, but Jezebel that killed Naboth. But think for a moment. Do you think Ahab was really clueless as to what was going on? Do you not think that his sulking in front of Jezebel was to try and move her to action? He knew what had happened. And the Lord was holding him accountable. And the word killed here in verse 19 is important because that's the same word that's used of God's commandment in Exodus chapter 20 against murder. Ahab has murdered and taken Naboth's land. And the judgment is clear. Just as dogs licked up Naboth's blood, so shall Ahab's blood be licked up. In response, Ahab gives a fairly aggressive response to Elijah. He says, "'Have you found me, O my enemy?' It's incredible that Ahab is so hard-hearted, so hard-hearted against Elijah, especially when you consider all the incredible interactions between him and Elijah in the past. It should really lead Ahab to confess Yahweh as the only God and worship him faithfully and listen to Elijah as God's prophet. Consider, for example, that Ahab witnessed God's display of power against the prophets of Baal in chapter 18, where God sent fire from heaven to consume a burnt offering drenched in water, showing that he was truly God. Ahab must be incredibly wicked to reject God after all that he's seen and heard from him. And there were many, many examples. And in calling Elijah his enemy, he makes God his enemy. Continuing in verse 20, Elijah replies, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, Ahab's completely given himself over to do rebellion. And here continues the judgment until verse 24, increasing in intensity. Disaster will come upon Ahab, and his family line will be entirely cut off. Everyone related to him will be utterly destroyed, whether in the city or in the country. This is what the Lord did to the other wicked kings in Israel's history. Seen in verse 22. It's the ultimate judgment of God on a king of Israel. The absolute annihilation of his kingdom. And notice that there's a judgment also pronounced on Jezebel. The only queen to ever have a pronouncement of judgment made on her. As her wickedness stands above all the other queens. And it's even more intense than Ahab's judgment. Instead of the dog simply licking her blood, we see in verse 23, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. The lowest, most humiliating, most humiliating, of deaths, within the very walls of the city where she had committed the most despicable of murders. We'll see these judgments for both Ahab and Jezebel being played out in the next chapter. Before we get to the end of the chapter today, we get a side note in verses 25 to 26. Let's read them. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. The author of this story wanted us to know this, that this was the most wicked king that Israel had ever had. Instead of being a faithful Jewish king and obeying God and worshipping him, He lived and behaved abominably like a pagan Amorite king incited by his wicked pagan wife and went after false gods. He was the most evil king in the history of Israel. Now the question remains that we asked at the start, would God have mercy on someone that evil? We've seen Ahab's self-centeredness, held accountable for murdering a faithful Israelite. We've seen him making himself an enemy of God, ignoring God's word. The faithful Jewish attitude towards Ahab is the attitude that we might have towards Hitler. Their names are the very definition of evil. Their names are enough to make you recoil. You might even hesitate to say it. Could God have mercy on someone that evil? Well, what comes at the end of this passage is absolutely striking. As Israel's most wicked king humbles himself before God. Let's look from verse 27. And when Ahab heard those words, Israel's most wicked king humbles himself before God. And clearly, clearly this is genuine. For the Lord answers mercifully in delaying judgment until the next generation. Ahab won't see this, it's his sons. And this was no childish dejection. This was no childish sulking this time, but genuine sorrow over God's coming judgment and of his sin being exposed. And interestingly, in the books of Kings, there are only two kings who repent like this. Only two kings who repent like this. Ahab, the worst, and Josiah, the best. But was Ahab a changed, regenerated king? Was he a changed, regenerated king who desired to worship God? I don't think so. And next week's passage will give us more evidence of that. So what can this passage teach us about how God responds to human evil? Firstly, it teaches us that God is a God of perfect justice. He will bring judgment upon sin. And that is coming for everyone. Not just Ahab, not just Jezebel. Not just for the worst of the worst, but for everyone who has ever sinned. Notice that God's judgments in this passage are perfectly in line with the evils that are committed. And we need to ask the question, what does sin, what does rebellion against God deserve? Romans chapter 6 verse 23 teaches us that the wage of sin is death. This is the perfect punishment coming for all that have sinned. And none of us can escape such a perfect judgment without God's intervention. But we need to note something else in this passage, that God is ready to show mercy. He's ready to show mercy. And perfect mercy is shown in God's Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that God even delays judgment on dejected Ahab is incredibly merciful. This man was wicked, but God delays judgment. He's incredibly merciful. But hundreds of years later, God showed mercy in the most infinite and perfect way in sending his son to take the punishment that sinners deserve, taking the obligation of God's perfect justice upon himself by dying on a cross that those who believe in him might never undergo God's judgment. He doesn't just delay our punishment. He abolishes it. He abolishes it. That is the mercy that God shows when sinners humble themselves, repent of their sin. And cling to Jesus for salvation. He's ready to show mercy. So humble yourself and trust in the merciful God. Now, before we close, we need to think about one more thing in this passage namely, what can we learn about ourselves in the story of Ahab and Jezebel? I think we need to see that Ahab's sin exposes the core problem of humanity in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and today. As one commentator says, For Ahab, what he wants dominates everything. Ahab feeds his desires, nurtures his desires, completely ignoring any correction from anyone or anything. To drown out the voice of God through the gospel... One only needs to think about what he or she wants. A lot. The more, the better. And that is exactly what Ahab does in 1 Kings 21. The lesson is clear. Ignoring what God says and living by what one wants will lead to disaster. Are you living in such a way that is selfish and self-seeking, just like Ahab was, drowning out the voice of God in his word by fixating on sinful desires. Truly, such an attitude leads to God's judgment. And on self-seeking, hear this quote from beloved Puritan Thomas Brooks. Self-seeking so blinds the soul that it cannot see a beauty in Christ nor an excellency in holiness. It distempers the palate that a man cannot taste sweetness in the word of God, nor in the ways of God, nor in the society of the people of God. It shuts the hand against all the soul-enriching offers of Christ. It hardens the heart against all the knocks and entreaties of Christ. It makes the soul as an empty vine and a barren wilderness. Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit to himself, Hosea 10.1. May that not be us, brothers and sisters. Let us examine ourselves and repent where we are self-seeking and listen to God speaking in his Word, asking him to help us in battling sin and in beholding and enjoying our glorious and merciful God. Let us rightly worship him and put him at the centre and as the aim of all that we do. Let's pray. O merciful Lord, we ask, O God, that we would come before you with hearts of submissiveness, of repentance for the sin that we have committed against you. Lord, we pray you would forgive us for all the moments where we've turned astray after our own selfish and sinful desires. Truly, these things can become so tempting. But Lord, please help us to see the danger of following these things and shutting out your word. We ask that you would work in our hearts, bring repentance and also help us to love you and cherish you and center all things around you in listening to you in your word, and living according to your word. We pray you would work in our hearts and help us to find deep delight in you, that we would glorify you all our days. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.